I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. If you value our work, please consider supporting us by becoming a podcast sponsor. If you become a new sponsor or if you renew your current sponsorship by increasing your gift, the impact of your investment in the Cato Institute will be doubled thanks to one of our generous sponsors who will be matching your gift dollar for dollar. The only way to do it is to visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and make that donation. Cato accepts no government money. We depend on the generosity of sponsors to help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. There are good reasons why potential secretaries of defense need waivers to take that job when they've been in the military most of their adult lives. Cato's Eric Gomez details why Lloyd Austin, president-elect Joe Biden's choice for defense secretary, will need a waiver for him to serve in that post so soon after departing the military. Who is Lloyd Austin? Well, he's the current nominee to be the next Secretary of Defense. Uh, before that, he was a, a four-star general in the U.S. military and served as commander of Central Command, which covers the Middle East. He's responsible for overseeing the U.S. drawdown in, Af- in Iraq and then also uh, overseeing the early stages of the anti-ISIS campaign. All right. So uh, he had, there's this, he's a special case. Um, and increasingly, it seems that his case is not a special case, um, given the kinds of waivers that uh, Senate-confirmed candidates for high administrative positions within the executive branch require, uh, at least with with respect to the Defense Department. So why do we have these waivers? Why do we need to get special permission for certain people to serve in these offices? So the waiver applies to the Secretary of Defense, um, and it it's simply that if you're a retired general, you have to wait seven years after leaving the military before you can be nominated to uh, serve in the role of Secretary of Defense. And the idea is that you know the U.S. has civilian control of the military, and if you have someone who is so recently out of military service leading the military in, in a role that's supposed to be for a civilian, it can create certain tensions between civil military relations. Um, so the most recently we had to secure a waiver for um, General Mattis, uh, who was Trump's first secretary of defense. And the idea at the time <laughs> was that this was supposed to be the exception, not the rule. Um, but then you have, uh, and then there was a couple of civilians who served in the SecDef role under Trump after Mattis uh, was fired. Um, and now it's back to a, a recently retired general. And I think that's raising a lot. Well, no, I don't think. I know it's raising a lot of eyebrows among uh, sort of defense and Pentagon watchers of like, wait a minute, like this was supposed to be a temporary thing or a, or a one-off thing for Mattis. Um, and that was how it was sold at the time. Um, and now there's another potential that a waiver would have to be obtained in order to have uh, retired General Austin serving in the role. Now, it's odd. Uh, before we started recording, we were sort of just uh, talking back and forth about this. And it seems odd to me that uh, someone who served at these high levels in the military 
who then retired, wouldn't need a waiver then to uh, serve on boards of major defense contractors. It's the opposite. They need uh, the waiver in order to come back into service within the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think you know this was the defense contractor connection was brought up a lot when uh, the the front runner for this nomination initially was Michelle Flournoy, and a lot of progressive groups sort of bristled at that because after Michelle Flournoy left the Pentagon uh, when she was in in the Obama administration, uh, she was also involved in defense industry, and. You know, I, I'm kind of of split minds about this. On the one hand, it's like that's how it is in some regards, right? People who are high up in the Pentagon that leave have a certain incentive to work for these defense firms, and they're private citizens; they can do what they want. Um, but it, I also understand that it does create this kind of s- somewhat ickiness to it, right? That if you're if you have these board responsibilities, or if you come from that world, then you might be making decisions that favor those places and not the national interest. Right. Broadly speaking, like the the left will claim uh, or people, people in good standing on the left will claim that uh, there's a revolving door between places like Goldman Sachs and the Department of the Treasury. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where I think they're right. They are definitely right to call it out, but there's also you know, I don't, I don't see there being any real effort to kind of reduce those incentives for people to do that. Because I mean, yeah, if you can, if you can, why would, as an individual, if you could, why wouldn't you? And, but it does have, I think, worrying implications for national security policymaking uh, to have that phenomenon exist. Joe Biden wrote in the Atlantic uh, earlier this month, Austin's many strengths and his intimate knowledge of the Department of Defense and our government are uniquely matched to the challenges and crises we face. He is the person we need at this moment. The next Secretary of Defense will need to immediately quarterback an enormous logistics operation to help distribute COVID-19 vaccines widely and equitably. Austin oversaw the largest logistical operation undertaken by the Army in six decades, the Iraq Drawdown. So, uh, you know, Biden here mentions COVID-19. How does the pandemic change what is going to be going on at the Pentagon and where the focus of uh, leaders at the Pentagon will be? I think it's going to do it in, in two big ways. The first one will be this, this logistics operation that the DOD is going to be involved in to try and distribute vaccine to every American. That's going to be a major effort that's going to absorb a lot of people's time and energy. And it's going to be a top priority because, you know, the country can't really start to recover economically or in any other sense until the pandemic is dealt with. In the, the second way, I think that this affects the, the military is budgets are going to be tight. Um, I, Biden and uh, House leadership and congressional leadership on the Democrat side have said already that they're not going to try and see defense budgets increase, um, that if anything, they're going to stay flat, if not come down a bit, um, because, you know, it does look kind of silly to buy extra F-35s if you don't have enough ventilators or respirators. Um, so I think that by by picking Austin and, and focusing in that Atlantic piece on his experience with the logistics of things, I think... Biden is signaling that 
DOD is going to be doing a lot of work on the COVID relief front in the near run. And this is something that Brandon Valeriano, a Cato colleague, and I wrote about for the American Conservative a few weeks ago, where we said that Biden's foreign policy, it might have some restraint-friendly aspects, even though Biden isn't a restrainer himself, just because focusing on this the the problems of COVID and the ripple effects it's had on the country is going to take up so much bandwidth and energy in the near term that the ability for Biden to launch a you know a, another foreign conflict or or to to kind of uh, have foreign policy goals that are incredibly ambitious might not make any sense because his attention is needed elsewhere. Uh, so that's like a in, in terms of and in terms of how Biden talked about. Austin's nomination in the Atlantic, I think that reflects it, right? That that COVID and, and recovering from what the pandemic has done to the country is going to be the first priority. So back to this issue of uh, qualifications and waivers, uh, it, I think you're totally right that it makes total sense that if somebody who recently left the Department of Defense w- had the opportunity to serve on the board of a, a major defense contractor and be well compensated for that and make use of the skills and knowledge that they had uh, in order to work for those firms, by all means, that's something that it's totally reasonable to assume that somebody would want to do. But getting back into uh, the government to lead nominally as a uh, civilian, I, I also understand why someone who has relatively recent uh, high-level military ex- experience would also want to uh, take on uh, these uh, difficult challenges in a place like the Defense Department. So we have these rules in place for a reason, and um, this person, uh, Mr. Austin, seems highly qualified. Uh yeah, how do we th- how do we thread that needle? Is it just we need to be more careful about this because uh, you know so far as you mentioned we had Jim Mattis and now uh, Austin. I I mean I think that the problem when you violate a norm and treat it as a one off is that it gets easier to do it the next time and we're already seeing it right there there have already been some people on the Hill on the Democrat side who voted against Mattis's waiver who are saying, but I'm going to vote for Austin's. And they don't say it in as many words, but basically like, well, because he's our guy, right? Like because he's, he was nominated by a Democrat, so it's different. And it, it it's disappointing because then it's like, you're not worried about the principle. You're not worried about the, the actual civ mill implications of it. You're just, you're just like, oh, well, we didn't like it when the other guy from the other party did it. But if it's our guy from our party, we'll do it. And, you know, maybe DC hasn't, I, maybe I haven't been in DC long enough to have all the optimism like wrung from my soul, but <laughs> I was hoping for, for more, um, honestly, from um, the Congress this time around that they would say, look, I don't care that, you know, the Democrats have, have more seats or whatever, um, but we're going to stick by a principle. And some are, uh, and, I, and I give them a lot of credit. I know Elizabeth Warren has come out, for example, and said, look, I wasn't for it for Mattis. I'm not going to be for it for... Austin, even though he's he's nominated by a Democrat. Um, but the more you do it, the easier it is to just keep doing it. And, and then soon it doesn't matter anymore. And it's not, you know, you might even get rid of the waiver entirely. Um, and under Mattis, I don't think any, I don't think there were any pr- 
problems necessarily um, from a civil military relations standpoint, but that's past success is no guarantee of future success in this regard. Um, and it, it's just something, it's, it's something that I think doesn't become a problem until it is. Um, and I worry that, you know, if Austin's nomination goes through without any kind of fight or, or any kind of resistance, meaningful resistance from Congress that, you know, whoever the next president's going to be is going to do the same thing. And the one after them and the one after that, because it's easy, right? The former general, if, if he was in the building, you know, only four years ago, he does know it really well. And it makes sense that you would like see them as, as qualified options uh, to, to run the department. But if <laughs> that's supposed to be, you know, a civilian doing that, not, not a, not a general or a recently retired one. I can understand wanting to to elevate someone like Austin with uh, you know incredible experience, prodigious talents, and an African American to to a high level of service uh, within the new administration. But there are ways for the president to do that without having to go through the U.S. Senate. If Biden wanted to have retired General Austin serving in a high capacity in government that is close to Biden, then he can take full advantage of. Austin's experience and advice, he could have put him at National Security Advisor. National Security Advisor does not require Senate confirmation. Um, it doesn't require any kind of waiver for recent military service. And in the past, there have been military officers who have served in that role. Um, so it's one way where if Biden wants Austin's experience and his, his advice um, and to have him close at hand to help with matters of state and the country and, and the country's security, that was an option available uh, to, to, fill, to fill that role uh, with General Austin in a way that wouldn't raise these types of concerns about the civil relationship. President Trump is on his way out, and he has, I think, tried, and I know there's been some skepticism in your department about how hard he has tried to uh, end wars, bring troops home. Uh, but he seems to have doubled down since uh, he lost on election day uh, to to bring troops home from Afghanistan. To the extent that the U.S. military is engaged with this massive logistics operation uh, with COVID nineteen, um, you know there may be more opportunities for restraint there. But I am also concerned that there will be more opportunities not to do the kinds of drawdowns and the kinds of formal exits from war uh, that you and I would both like to see. Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable concern. And it was interesting that Biden chose to highlight in the Atlantic. I think that was like one of the first really positive like examples that he gave of Austin's past service was he oversaw this drawdown of a huge number of troops uh, from Iraq. Um, so it, and look, John and I, when we were on this program, John Glazer, my, the uh, director of foreign policy studies, um, we, we were doubtful of Trump's commitment to actually leaving Afghanistan because, you know, if he could have, he could have done it a long time ago um, and to do it rushed in the last few months of an administration we just thought wouldn't work. I'm still kind of skeptical that it will happen. Um, to give an example of, of this, like he, we drew down from Somalia and then every, all the troops are just going to Kenya next door. <laughs> right. 
Um, and I, I, I wonder if a similar thing might happen in Afghanistan, where if we, we leave, you know, a certain amount left there in Afghanistan, or if we uh, just take the withdrawn troops and put them somewhere else overseas, so they're not actually coming home. But I hope that by highlighting that service that Austin had with overseeing the Iraq withdrawal, that that signals something about Biden's willingness to leave Afghanistan. Because I think, I think Biden gets it. I, I think he understands that the mission is is not a fruitful one anymore. Um, well, and also in 2009, you'll recall just as uh, President Obama had taken office that uh, Biden was a fairly strong voice in not engaging in a troop surge in Afghanistan. Right, right. Which was, you know, it, it's not quite a withdrawal, but at the time, uh, you know, that was a that was a really restraint friendly. That was probably the most restraint friendly position that that administration could have taken at that time. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful. And, and the thing I say, uh, the thing I've said about Biden recently is that Trump might have had a good restraint idea every now and then, but he had absolutely no ability to carry it out effectively. I think Biden also isn't going to have a ton of like things that folks like me and the rest of the Cato to Foreign Policy Department are going to get super excited about. But when he does, I think he'll have the sort of experience and wherewithal to actually carry it out. And so I'm hopeful that early on in his in his administration, Biden will support troop reductions in Afghanistan and elsewhere in, in the Middle East. And if he does, given if if Austin is confirmed for SecDef and given Biden's ability to kind of work the government and actually have it do things effectively, um, I think that will actually happen. Unlike Trump, who might have said, like, I want to get out of Afghanistan and then totally botch the follow through and the execution of that plan. Eric Gomez directs defense policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 